brand new series, preaching series, and I normally start this it's about the second week of January. And I, I'll be honest with you, and I, I don't claim to have all the answers. I've just been praying and asking God, what direction shall I go this year? And what should the emphasis and focus be? And I didn't have clarity on that. And I didn't want to get started somewhere where that wasn't necessarily the focus and emphasis God wanted uh, us and wanted me to emphasize. And so I believe I have clarity on that now. So today, as of today, I'm starting a brand new preaching series entitled Thrive. Can you say that with me? Thrive. You got to put an exclamation point behind that. Thrive. Amen. I know, I know, listen, I know y'all gave a better response to uh, Minister Cooper and Minister Lewis on last week. Amen. I know y'all did. And y'all, y'all, they, they ain't happy to see me back. That reminds me of a story as we get started. There's an elderly woman uh, who walked into the church and one of the ushers uh, gave her a friendly greeting and he escorted her up the stairs and into the sanctuary and he asked the elderly woman, what would you like to sit? She said, I'd like to sit on the front row. He said, you sure you want to sit on the front row? She said, yes. He said, uh, you might not want to sit up there. She said, why? Because the pastor is boring. He'll put you to sleep. And uh, she said, uh, he happens to be my son. <laughs> the usher asked the lady, says, do you know who I am? The lady says, no, I don't. He said, good. <laughs> Let us shout, thrive. In case you haven't noticed in this country and the world itself, it seems that we are in a chaotic moment and state. We are in a crisis. This has also affected the church. Church attendance is in a ser- is in serious decline. Even if you notice overall, the spirit of the church is down and its effectiveness is minimal at best. In other words, the church is in crisis. We're discipling fewer people, maybe because on one hand we are evangelizing or sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ less. And then there's lesser, a lesser missions and missional focus, but we're more concentrated and focused on the internal comforts of the church than we are those on the outside. The reality is fewer young people are even interested in leadership today in the church. The number of churches that close each year is nearly three times the number that open in that same year. Three times more churches close statistically than those open in a given year. And no county in the nation reports a higher percentage of church attendance than 10 years ago. We are not stagnant. We have not plateaued. We are in serious decline. It appears that the people in this world, as well as the church, is in survival mode. We're stuck. And yet God has called his people and he's called the church to thrive. That's what leads me to this series and this focus to thrive. And what I've noticed historically when we look at antiquity of the church, the church has been its best in the worst of conditions. Under the most ex, ex, uh, extenuating circumstances, the church has been able to thrive and be its absolute best. Let me start with a working definition of what it means to thrive. One definition of 
thrive, it means to prosper and to flourish, to prosper and to flourish. But oftentimes outside of the church, when we think of that word thrive and we think what it means to prosper and to flourish, we might consider the farmer or the agriculturist. And when a farmer thrives, then his cops, crops grow, cops too, depending on what neighborhood you're in and what you're growing. Uh, but his crops grow and his harvest is even more plentiful. In business, when you talk about a business thriving, the business normally makes more money. Uh, an athletic team, a basketball, football team, when the team thrives, they win more games. But when it comes to the church, thriving is much different. We do our best, again, in the worst conditions. Look at church history. When Christ was on the cross, although he was dying and being executed by a Roman execution, the church prospered or thrived, if you will, or flourished as a result of his death. When death came to Christ, then life came to the rest of the world. When Stephen was stoned to death and the church was persecuted, the church thrived. When Paul was locked in a Roman prison cell, if you will, it was then the gospel went to all of the world. In other words, the church, it was thriving. Again, these are the best in the worst of times. Yet the church has some growing opposition. We have challenges. Body of Christ Church is certainly not exempt from them. As a matter of fact, I'll venture out to say this, especially in America, all churches are and will face these challenges. And we're going to have to figure out how to maneuver through these challenges in order for us to thrive. And so my, in my attempt for the next few weeks, I want to take each, each uh, Sunday uh, two or three of these areas that we're being challenged in and figure out not only and take a look at how the challenges affect the church, but what we can do to thrive in these challenges. Is that all right, church? I said, is it all right? I was having a flashback. I'm only going to deal with two of what I consider the most great, greatest of challenges that we're faced with. But we've got great opportunity to thrive. The first one is the privatization of truth and belief. The privatization of truth and belief. Now, now what, do I, what do I mean by that? When we look at the, the current culture, we live in a postmodern culture. Postmodern culture doesn't believe in absolute truth. They believe there's no absolute truth, but there's such thing as relative truth. In other words, truth is determined by each person's own determination and conclusion of what is right and wrong, what is true or false. Even it doesn't even make any sense. It's an oxymoron to say there's no absolute truth, but each person can come to their own means of truth. So that conclusion of privatized truth, it leads us to privatize personal uh, belief or a faith system. It just simply means that all truth is relative to, to the person, uh, then all, if that be the case, then whatever that person believes to be true becomes that person's belief system and nothing outside of that person's belief system can challenge them. 
is because it's privatized. Whatever you feel is right, whatever I feel is right, no matter how different those things might be, it's true to you and it is just as true to me. This also shapes a person's view of God and what they believe about God, who God is, or how God operates, and whether even God exists or not. It's their truth. And since, it again, it is their truth, then it is their faith or their belief. And I'm going to say it again. And nothing and no one can argue, challenge, or disagree with their belief because, again, there is, according to them, no absolute rule or no absolute basis or principle for what is true. And so this privatization of, of truth is, is not only common throughout the culture, but the sad news is it's made its way into the church. And nowadays, people, all of us have opinions, but people can sit in pews and in chairs in the church and they say, well, that's what's true to the preacher or even read the same passage from the same Bible and say, well, I see that a totally different way. And it's not just a matter of opinion. What it really is, it's a matter of preference. (laughs) I read into the text instead of extracting and extrapolating from the text what God actually means when he says this. And so, so when we do that, we have the absence or reverence of God today because we have reduced a definition of who God is in his existence and in his essence and 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 we reduced it down to human reasoning. And so therefore I am the one who determined who God is based on my own relative truth that forms my own belief system or my own system of faith. Uh, now, Now, this is what I want us to understand. Long before you and I ever existed, truth existed. And when we were born and came and entered into this world, truth was already here. I wish I had somebody that knew the truth about this. You don't have to believe it, but we were born into absolute truth. Truth existed before our existence. And those absolute truths in the world... Uh, existed before we entered into the world and they are determining factors for science, for physics, for logic, for as well as even spiritual matters. You can argue all day long there is no absolute truth, but the reality is two plus two equals four when you were born into this world. It was two plus two equals four before we entered into this world. And when we're long gone, guess what? Two plus two ain't going to be three. It ain't going to be five. It's still going to be four. Here's the reason why absolute truth existed before any of us entered into this world. Long before Newton ever entered into this world, the laws of physics concerning gravity and motion was already here or already existed. The only thing he did was came and put theories and name to it and an explanation of it, which is basically a human explanation of it. But before Newton was born, if a man jumped off the top of a mountain, eventually he'll come crashing to the ground. Which means that gravity existed before Newton was able to explain it. It doesn't make any difference whether you and I believe that gravity exists and we're going to define what gravity is. Now, if you don't believe in gravity, just jump off the top of a building and come back and tell me the results. But the question is, where did this undisputable, immutable, 
and perpetual truth come from? Truth had to exist before you and I ever existed and creation ever existed. So there's, therefore there's something, I would rather say someone, because all truth and creation is a part of intelligent design. It doesn't just happen. It's not just random. It's intelligent design. It, it exists because it was created with a purpose in mind and someone had to have that purpose in mind and bring it to fruition. And so therefore God created these rules, these standards and the basis for truth. Uh, let me, let me say two things about truth. First of all, truth is ontological. Uh, ontological simply is an extravagant way of saying that the way things really are or the way things they really exist. That's ontological. Reality is what it, reality is what it is because God declared it to be so and made it to be so. Truth is ontological. Therefore, God is the creator. He is the supreme source. He is the determiner. He is the chief administrator. He is the arbiter. He is the ultimate standard. And he is the final judge of all truth. But why is this so? Because secondly, truth is theological. All truth is not only from God, but God is the basis and the standard for all truth. Here's the reason why. Because God is truth. He's not just true, which means right, but he is the essence and the epitome of truth. That, that is, that is the, uh, that, uh, the, uh, uh, that is that which is consistent with the, truth is consistent with the mind, with the will, with the determining factor, with the purpose and the character and the glory and the essence of God. Another way of saying it is, truth is the self-expression of who God is. That's why truth existed before you and I ever existed, because God existed before you and I ever existed. Matter of fact, here's just a few passages of scripture. If y'all don't mind me sharing the word of God with you this morning so you can know it for yourself. A few passages of scripture regarding God being that absolute truth. Deuteronomy 32 and 4 says he is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice and God, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he, a God of truth. Therefore, righteous and upright is he. John 4, 6 says, Jesus says to them about himself being God, he says, I am the way. But don't forget, he says this, the truth and the life. I am the truth. I just, I'm not just telling you the truth. I, what I'm saying is not just true, but I am. You're looking at the truth. And no one comes to the Father except by me. That is true because he is the truth. Matter of fact, Jesus in his prayer to the Father before he uh, ascends into heaven in John 17, 17 says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, 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 now listen to that. That's a double whammy right there. Sanctify them, set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. What is truth? Your word is truth. But we just read that God is truth. Then we read that God is revealed through his son who is an expression of truth. Y'all got that? But then he says, sanctify them by your word, which is not just true, but truth. 
No wonder John starts his writing off in the gospel and says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And listen to this, and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. We saw truth. God, Jesus, let me go all the way back to the beginning of creation. He created everything by his word, yet the the word says everything was created by him, exists by him and for him. And so therefore, God spoke into nothingness and, and everything that exists came into being and existence and he gave life to everything. How did he do it? By his word which is truth because Jesus is truth that spoke the word of truth. And so therefore, where nothing existed, now everything exists. In other words, I said all that to say, that is another living proof before you and I ever enter into this world. Truth was already spoken into this world because it was truth who spoke into this world. And that truth is Jesus Christ himself. Wrestling with this truth. Jesus before Pilate, John 18, 37 and 38. The text says, Pilate therefore said to Jesus, listen to the question, are you the king? That's, that's what the Jews said, you're trying to be the king. You're trying to be the king. You're a threat to Rome and you're worrisome to them. So are you the king? Jesus answered, You say rightly. In other words, you speak on one hand. You've given the correct answer that I am king. You gave the correct answer, but you really don't know the fact, the truth, because that's the reason why you're asking me. Jesus says, for this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness. Y'all got that to the truth. I am the living witness of God who is truth. Now, this is what he says. This is the catcher. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Here's the reason why. They hear my word and they recognize that I am the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, everyone who believes in Christ, everyone who is in Christ recognizes truth because truth lives inside of them. Peter said, to, uh, Pilate said to him, well, well what is truth? <laughs> and when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. He still didn't know absolute truth but he knew that there was something different about Jesus so let me repeat that again we will know the truth because the true one who is truth Christ lives inside of us and there's no way we can recognize truth not unless we're in Christ and Christ's truth is inside of us Uh, truth is truth is not fact it's not uh, reduced to theories or concepts or ideologies. Matter of fact, truth is a living being. And John, same John that writes his first epistle in 1 John 1 and 8. I hope I'm not giving y'all too much Bible this morning. 1 John 1 and 8. There's three things that he says in the passage itself. And I'll give you all three verses. But 1 John 1 and 8, he says, if we say that we have no sin. All right, y'all self-righteous folks, pay attention. 
if we say that we have no sin, we deceive. Deception hides the truth and disguises falsehood to make it appear as truthful. He says, if we say that we have no sin, then we deceive nobody but ourselves. What we're doing is we're covering up truth and presenting falsehood as if it is true. And then he says, this it is, and the truth is not in us. The truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, if God, Christ, is truth, then Christ does not live in us. He does not abide in us. Because if Christ's truth really abide in us, then he will reveal sin and we will know that he's true. But then in 1 John 1.10, go down two verses. John says again, if we say that we have not sinned, now we're calling God a liar. And as more proof, his word is not in us. Now, his word ain't in us because Jesus is the word. And if Jesus is not us, then the word is not in us. So we have no way reflecting outside of self-reflection of how we're living and who we really are, not unless Christ abides in us because he is that word of truth. But then listen to this, First John chapter 1, go back up to verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him, I have a relationship with Christ. Listen to this, I am a Christian and walk in darkness. I am a practitioner of darkness, of sin. Then once again, we lie. Lying is the opposite of truth. And do not practice the truth. The reason why we're not practicing truth is because truth is not in us. But the Bible said it's the Holy Spirit that reveals truth inside of the believer. John 16, 13. I'm hanging out with John today. However, when he, and he, 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 he explains who the he is, when he, the third person of the Trinity, the spirit of truth has come. Now he refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears from Christ, from the Father, He will speak and he will tell you things to come. And so therefore, there is no way, that's the reason why the world is in the condition that it's in, that the world can know truth, not unless they know Christ. And Christ is not revealed except for his word. And his word is not understood except to be for the Holy Spirit. But we have great challenge against truth the challenge against absolute truth in our culture is not about philosophical difference no it's it's really deeper than that it's treason against God because God is truth and when we come against truth or to say there is no absolute truth then we're saying there is absolutely no God Because now he is truth. You can't say there's no absolute truth, but I believe in God. (laughs) You can't 
describe or define Jesus is just a good man, a great teacher, but he's not God. Listen to this, because that's not true. And you would know that we would know that if truth lived inside of us. Christ. Paul made it clear in Romans chapter one, verses 18 and 19. When he says this, for the wrath of God is revealed, here's the problem, here's with the origin of the challenge that we're faced with in our culture that's made its way into the church. Here is the origin, here's the source of the problem, we got to get to the root of the problem. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men unrightness. If you're not right, then you're wrong. In other words, you're not true, but you're false. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Not only the known facts that God has revealed, but we suppress the knowledge of God. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Let me make this theological observation, if you will. It's my opinion. It's my opinion. Somebody say his opinion. And then also say because he's a pastor is right. <laughs> Which is wrong. When we do missions, we don't take the gospel across the world so that people will know God. There's nobody in this world who does not know God because the scripture says God has been revealed to all people. He's been revealed to all people in two ways. Through creation, we'll look at this in a moment, as well as through consciousness. When the world looks at, when people look at the world around them, they know that man didn't create this. It had to come from a higher supreme being outside of this world who does not exist in this world and does not depend or codependent on what's in this world. And so therefore God has been revealed to all people and not only that through creation but through consciousness. We know we have a sense of right and wrong. I give these examples all the time. I don't care if you've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't care if there's no court system and where you live. We know in our consciousness the difference from right from wrong just like with Adam and Eve. And so therefore, when they committed wrong, what was the first thing they did? Even the first time they committed, they weren't habitual wrongdoers. It's the first time they committed wrong. They ran from God and they hid. Why? Because God has been revealed to them through their consciousness as well as through creation. And so therefore, when we do missions, we're not trying to tell people about God because they don't know about God. We're trying to tell them about Jesus, who is a revelation manifestation of God, so they might have salvation through him because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Y'all got it? That they might become a part of this ecclesiastical body, this living organism, the church, his bride. So they might experience the same joys and glorying in him that we do, those who have been exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe in Jesus Christ, who is the absolute truth. So Paul says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. They suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. Here's the reality. Let me go ahead and say this. There's a story, it says once the devil, he was walking alongside of one of his cohorts. And they saw a man ahead of them picking up this shiny object. 
And uh, and so the cohort says to the devil, what did he find? The devil said he he found a piece of truth. And uh, and the cohort said, doesn't that bother you that he found a piece of truth? And the devil says, no, he said, I'll make sure that he makes a religion out of it. That's what religion is. It's a piece of truth. The reality is people suppress the truth of the true God, but they can't get around the fact that God exists because God has been revealed to them. So everybody's got to figure out what am I going to do with God? Like I said before, there's no such thing as atheism because atheism exists because God exists. So you have to come up with some type of thought. You have to come up with some belief system to explain away something that you say doesn't exist. So there's an attack against the church and the battle for truth. Paul writes to the younger preacher, Timothy. First Timothy 315, his spiritual son. Listen to what he says carefully. I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves. How you ought to live. Where? In the house of God. That ain't just Sunday morning because we are the house of God. He said, I'm writing, I'm writing, Rev, so that you will know and you can teach the people how they ought to conduct themselves in the house of God. Here's the reason why, which is the church of the living God, the word alive and life giving the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. The church is the pillar, the foundation and ground, the basis for truth. In other words, we house truth. We possess truth because Christ lives in us and we are possessed by him. Y'all getting this in a minute. So the reason the world is in chaos is because they are absent from truth, denying the truth, suppress truth. But we are the only ones that have hope. Because we are the ground of truth. Now you see why Satan, through people in this culture, has launched an attack against the church. And everything that we do... (laughs) That, that we say is right and righteous. They say, no, it's wrong. And then we're discriminating. And now we have those who are in public office who are supposed to have been the pillar and grounds of truth. I'm talking about evangelical Christians who have put a man in office who does not abide by the truth. I don't know his belief, but it didn't seem like he believes in the truth. He has alternative truth. And yet they have not held him accountable But they have held everybody accountable by truth. And now we come to this place where we understand why is the world in such chaos? It's because the church of the living God is supposed to be the pillar and ground of truth. Now, don't, 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 no, 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 no. Just don't, don't, don't start nodding your head, black folk, because Trump is in office. But when Obama was in office and others before him, we didn't stand on truth regarding saving the lives of unborn children or uh, homosexuality and saving the family context the way God designed it. If I can be honest, we were just glad to have a black president. I'm not saying he did a bad job. When the best president, if not the best that I've had, In terms of being presidential and democratic. But the reality is the establishment. 
weren't abiding in truth. Anybody got a pen so I can drop it on this carpet? So you see, Satan is all out against the church because it's a battle for truth. But we're the only hope this world has. But understand, this hope is not just theoretical. It's not just truth that we preach. But Paul says to Timothy, I write to you so that you might know how to conduct yourselves in the house of God. In other words, saying I know the truth but live a lie ain't a good testimony. It destroys our testimony. We not only speak the truth, we not only are givers of the truth, but we got to demonstrate that truth. That's the only hope that this world has. We're the only hope this world has is because we hold, again, truth in our hearts, in our mouths, but we hold it in our lifestyle. In other words, we live in such a way that our lifestyle in Christ, abiding in truth, becomes infectious. People want in because they know that there's something different about us. And then because you got your dress dragging the ground and you don't wear lipstick and makeup and you don't drink and you don't smoke and you don't cuss. There's something about our value system. What we treasure that's much different than the rest of the world. So the church thrives when... The people of God abide in the truth. But the truth has been contaminated in the church today. And that's my concern. But here's what the psalmist says in Psalms 25 and 5. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long, no matter what happens in this world. How, how do how do we how do we maneuver through and thrive through the chaos, the confusion, the mess? Abiding in the Word of God, following Jesus Christ, who is the truth, submitting ourselves to Him. Stop calling a lie truth. It doesn't make any difference how you try to dress a lie up; it's still a lie. If you put lipstick on a pig, at the end of the day, it's a ham sandwich, and it smells like chitlins. And that chitlins ain't what I want to say. The personalization of truth and belief is one of the greatest challenges we're faced with. Let me close with the second great challenge, which is probably the greatest of all. Not that anything I'll say at this point afterward would be minor in comparison. One of the greatest challenges that we're faced with in the church today that causes us not to thrive and reach our full potential as God's body <clears throat> is because we're challenged. There's a challenge against the glory of God. 
We are glory seekers. This world now seeks its own glory. We'll talk about that next week. God's will about individualism is one of the greatest challenges we have in facing the church. But we're seeking our own glory. We, we know that the world does not honor the world. Those outside of the church does not honor and glorify God. The Bible says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In other words, the glory that is rightly due to God and the honor, then we come short of giving that honor to him, being reflections of that honor. We see the, the, the world's view and, 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 and nature, the nature of sinful mankind dishonoring God and not glorifying him. Matter of fact, Paul again in Romans 1, 21, 23 says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. They knew God exists. I already talked about that. But the problem is they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and foolish in their hearts, and their hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they had more degrees and walls to hang them on. And they changed the glory, changed the glory of an incorruptible God into an image made with corruptible man or like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. It's not just the children of Israel in the wilderness at the foot of Mount Sinai creating a gold calf. But it's the golden images of God that we've created in our own imaginations. As a result of privatization of truth, and developing our own belief system. And so therefore we have become idols. Idolaters. But here's what I noticed. It's not just what's going on in, outside of the church. But I noticed something going on inside the church. There seems to be a lackluster or a lack of passion in the church for the glory and the honor of God. Even on Sunday mornings we come to get our own blessing. <laughs> I'm going through some stuff, so I want God to bless me, God to strengthen me. I want God to do this for me. I want a new car. I want a new house. I want a new job. I, I want this. I want that. And so therefore, we'll talk about this consumerism. And so therefore, I've really come to the church to consume. I believe in God as a consumer, not as a glorifier of God. So there's no passion. I ain't talking about emotional excitement. There's emotional excitement at basketball games, especially for Duke fans right now. Here's the reality. We were made to magnify, glorify, or worship God. The Westminster Confession uh, the shorter catechism, these are catechisms back in the day, 1647, they, they taught, they catechized in the church systematically by asking a question and giving a response or an answer. And one of the first of, in that short catechism of the Westminster Confession, uh, is the question, what is the chief end of man? What is what is the, the ultimate goal of man? Why do we exist ultimately? And here's the answer, which is a biblical answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and in glorifying God, we enjoy him forever or enjoying him, they find total satisfaction in him is really what glorifies him. 
I know I talk about this subject a lot, but it probably, no doubt, more than any other subject or topic I'll ever preach and teach on. And the reason that I, I, I stay on this subject about the glory and the honor of God so much, why it's not only so important to me, but it's important outside of me before I ever exist is because the word of God, the Bible, I don't know of any other truth that's more essentially prevalent and inescapable than God's passion and zeal to be glorified. Not that he needs us to glorify and honor him in order for him to be glorified, but he has created us for his glory. And I'm going to go ahead and get ahead of myself. And because of his love for us, he says, I'm going to give you the privilege to glorify me because that is who I glory in so that you can receive the joy that I have. This means that the ultimate plan and purpose of God creating us and everything in creation in the heavens and in the earth is because of his zeal and his passion to be glorified. Matter of fact, in Psalms 19 verses 1 through 6, the Living Bible translation says the heavens are telling the glory of God. (laughs) All of the heavens, the firmament, the clouds, the stars, the moon. They're telling of the glory of God, all of creation itself. But right now he's focused on what we can see in the sky. They're telling of the glory of God. But here's what I noticed. They are they are marvelous display of his craftsmanship, of his handiwork. Day and night they keep telling, they keep on telling about God. But this is what I love what the psalmist says. Without a sound or word. Simply because they exist. And they are the creation of God and he has created it for his glory. That's the reason why we're working all week, working every day, whatever we're doing. We say, I can't wait to go to the beach. It is not so that we can necessarily escape work. It's so that we can have an experience that is beyond us. So that we can go to the ocean and look at the vastness of the ocean. We can swim, we can snorkel, we can dive. And look at what's below the ocean surface. We can fly on a plane and see the circumference of the earth and its splendor and its wonders. We can go to a mountain and stand on the precipice of the mountain and look down and look out and see hundreds of miles away. God said, I created all of that so all of that will point to me without speaking a word. So the human hearts would glorify me day and night they keep on telling about God without a sound of word silent in the skies their message reaches out to all the world the sun lives in the heavens where God placed it and moves out across the skies as radiant as a bridegroom going to his wedding two examples he said he said it's like the bridegroom with his tux on and when he comes out not only does he have great anticipation He can't wait to see his bride. I've seen the strongest of men stand in this pulpit and I'm officiating a wedding. And dudes already, the groomsmen are teasing them. Bro, you're going to break down. I know it. You're going to break down. I know you know what I'm talking about. You're going to break down. Brother, man, he's strong. He's strong. And I whispered to him. I said, here she come. (laughs) I said, you're strong, bro. (laughs) He's overwhelmed by the bride's beauty and her glory. 
And he says, listen, the sun and the stars and the moon, they exist. And with great anticipation, excitement and joy, we are overwhelmed like the bridegroom coming out with his tux on, but he know it ain't about him. Everybody looking at him initially, but they're waiting for the bride to come. We don't say stand up when the dude comes out. My brother wearing a rented tux and pat leather rented shoes. She's in a dress she's going to keep forever. And try to force her daughters to wear. And your mama going to do it to you, I'm telling you. The reason why you and I should glorify God in everything is because God glorifies himself in everything. I can stop preaching right there. So that in our thoughts and in our motives and in our actions and our deeds and in our emotions, we live and we love to make much and the most out of God, make most of him and to make him most glorious in and through us. That's what it means to glorify God. Matthew fifteen sixteen. God wants to be visible. That's the reason why the scripture says, Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds. As a result of it, us being reflections of God, then they glorify your father, which is in heaven. So to glorify God means that we treasure God, his beauty, his majesty, his his strength, his love, his worth above all treasures and live purposely. To put his beauty and his majesty and his worth on display every day of our lives in every situation before all people in all that we say and all that we do and what we like the mountains and the stars and the sun and even what we don't say and we don't do in action. But people notice God in and about us. We were created and solely exist exclusively for God's glory. Matter of fact, the psalmist says in Psalms 86 and verse 9, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, which you have made. Listen, this is the reason why he made them, that they might come and worship before him, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Romans eleven thirty six. for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Why did he make and create everything for himself? Why? To be glorified. Isaiah in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophet in Isaiah 49 verses 11 and 12. For my name's sake, God says, listen to this, not for our sake, but for my name's sake, I will defer my anger and for my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I don't cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but I haven't, but, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. And this is the reason why I did it, not just for your own good, but ultimately for my own sake. And he repeats it in case we get it twisted. For my own sake, I will do it. For how shall my name be profane? And I will not give my glory to another. Let me tell you something. The reality is... While I'm up here talking about God and trying to describe the glory of God, he has every right to strike me down for opening my mouth and mentioning his name. And not only that, but he has every right to strike all of y'all down for listening to me. 
But the reason why he does not strike Calvin down and all of my impurities, all my fault and all of my inadequacies and, and the lack of my knowledge of who he is trying to describe him. It ain't because of me. It ain't because he just loves us so much and he's so kind. He's doing it for his own reputation. He said the poor boy doing the best he can under the situation. He's trying to represent. We were created in the image and the likeness of God. But why? Why did God create eight billion images of Himself in the earth? Because images are designed to be reflections. It's like broken pieces of glass. <laughs> and even broken pieces of glass, when you lay down together, they can, they can face the sun and still give an image of the sun. It might be somewhat distorted. That's what sin has done. But yet through the rebirth, God, listen, makes us a new creation. His truth, his spirit lives and abides in us. Christ abides in us, the light of God. And listen, and so therefore we can be reflections of who he is. Matter of fact, all of life and death is summed up in this glorifying God. Matter of fact, Paul wrote, to the Philippians in Philippians 1 verses 20 and 21 and says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing shall I be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body. I'm created in this image and this likeness. Paul says Christ is magnified in my body. Through my life, through my speech, through my actions, through my motives, Christ is magnified in my body. Listen, not only by life, but even in my death. That's where we get what Paul says. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Stop saying, church, when a believer dies and acting like the world has come to an end. Not only to live is Christ, but because we have hope and victory through Christ. He raises us from the dead, not because he didn't want us to rot in the ground. Listen to this, before his own glory, he says, what I started out to do, I am going to complete it because I am faithful and just and my reputation, my glory is on the line. church doesn't exist let me let me let me say this clearly and preparing a piece i've got to go to by the grace of god st croix in a few weeks and three-day conference there and just in the word of god and just praying what do i do in this conference what do i i say regarding impact that's the theme of the conference i think impact is this collision between humanity and divinity and divinity is so strong that it dominates, if you will, humanity. But yet you want to talk about how to be an effective church, how to be soul winners, how to listen to this. And I, I come to this conclusion. The church doesn't exist for evangelism. The church doesn't exist for good Sunday school and Bible study. The church doesn't exist for Sunday morning worship, i.e. singing, preaching, music, ushering. The church doesn't exist for missions. The church exists to glorify God. And evangelism, discipleship, outreach, missions, 
and Sunday morning experience leads us to. It's not an end. And that's the way we treat it. It's not an end in itself in the experience. We don't go listen to all the world to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ as if once we get there, people believe that's the end. But so that they will worship God and glorify him as God. So all of these things lead to worshiping the true and living God. This vibrant, this powerful, this self-existing, self-sufficient, ever-present, all-knowing, all-wise, radiant, beautiful God. See, God created you and me not only for his glory, but love because, again, he's on a mission and undertaking to bring you in the world and to himself that we might experience joy and the fullest expression of joy that we could ever have. God's aim is to multiply your joy, to extend your joy, if you will, your happiness beyond anything you could ever achieve on your own and beyond anything you can ever imagine in terms of joy. This is just how beautiful, this is just how loving, this is just how great, gracious and merciful God really is. So, so when God, when God is not delighted in, listen, when God is not our ultimate and supreme satisfaction or we don't glorify and treasure God above all things, then what we're doing is we're giving glory to something else beside himself. So in other words, we do, we make that thing other than God look more glorious than he really is. That's the reason why God says you shall have no other God before me. But it's a liberating truth. God commands us and wants us to pursue, listen, full and complete happiness and joy and purpose in life. But he knows it can only be found in him. So he's given us commandments and say, don't do this, because if you do this, you're going to miss out on the joy that I promised. John F. Kennedy, in closing, he said this. It's quoted as he says this. When written in Chinese, the word crisis is composed of two characters. One represents danger and the other represents opportunity. In other words, every crisis finds in itself an invitation of opportunity. Church, we're in a great crisis. This world is in a great crisis. But in that crisis... It's the greatest opportunity. But I'm telling you, if you don't get these two things right here, you are lost. You will have no meaning in life. You will spend the rest of your life like a hamster running on the wheel, going nowhere fast. Abide in his truth and glorify him in your all. Let us pray. Father God, we give you thanks and we praise you. God, we thank you even for the challenges because it's in the challenges that you'll refine us, oh God. You will even help redefine who we are, remind us who we are in you and what the mission of the church and why we exist. God, I thank you today, oh Lord. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for your word of truth. Thank you, O oh God, for your glory in this place. 
May we leave this place today being reflections of your glory. Honoring you. Putting you on full display. Your majesty, your beauty, your strength, your might, your righteousness, your grace, your love. That the world might know you. That the world might have hope in a time of hopelessness. God, I pray that this church particularly would flourish. Help us to realize we are the pillar and ground of truth. It's not just us. Father, you said upon this rock, the gates of hell shall not prevail against your church. But help us not to be just survivors, but thrivers. With great expectation, let us leave this place. Go out into this dark world, but shining in the radiant light of Jesus Christ. That they might the world might glorify you. God, we thank you even for the unsaved that if there's anyone here that may not know Christ as their Savior, they might, Lord, open their house, hearts with their mouths, say, oh Lord, here I am, I surrender to you. I just don't want to escape hell and damnation, but God, I want to know you in the part of my sins. I want Christ to live inside of me. I want truth to abide in me. I want to be led and and guided by that truth oh God I want to walk in that truth I want to be a clear demonstration of that truth Lord I pray that their hearts are open today realize that all have sinned and come short of your glory but help them to realize oh Father that Jesus Christ is not only the truth but he is the life God thank you today for your people in this place may we glorify you in all things in Jesus name Amen and amen. Come on, let's magnify the Lord.